There are so many hot springs and mineral baths in Hungary that doctors even prescribe a day at the spa as therapy. We don't have oil, but we have hot water, so uh, <laughs> they say that's the one thing that probably we're never going to run out of. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we dip into the hot springs culture of Hungary, and we find out how you can enjoy it too. Geologist Andres Russo grew up hearing stories about a boiling river flowing deep in the Amazon in Peru. When he went looking for it, he found out the indigenous legends weren't that far off. One of the reasons that this river is sacred is because it's the home of the Yakumama, this giant serpent spirit who gives birth to hot and cold water. And discover the treasures in the Basilica of St. Anthony in Padova, not far from Venice. Besides having works of art of some of the most talented pupils of Giotto and his school, you have the breathtaking statues of Donatello. There's something in the water in the hour ahead today. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're getting into a lot of hot water today on Travel with Rick Steves. A young geologist tells us about his adventures in the Peruvian jungle to confirm the existence of an incredible river flowing with boiling water hot enough to make tea. And he explains how he dealt with the potential clashes between the rights of indigenous communities, the pressures from agricultural development, and the curiosity of science. Plus, a guide from Padova in Italy tells us about the attractions in her hometown. It has one of the oldest universities in the world, where Galileo and Erasmus studied. And it boasts an important heritage of saints and art treasures. And it's only a half-hour's ride away from the crowds of Venice. We're at 877-333-7425. Let's start with Hungarian tour guides Peter Poltzman and George Farkas. It's experiences that distinguish a good trip. I mean actually doing activities unique to the culture you're visiting. In Hungary, that means going to the hot springs and relaxing with locals who are experts at doing just that. They say if you poke a hole in the ground anywhere in Hungary, you'll find hot water. And we're going to learn more about that right now as we're joined by two Hungarian tour guides. George Farkas and Peter Poltzman come to us right into our studio today from Budapest. George and Peter, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting us. So what is it about Hungary and uh, your love affair with hot springs, George? It's uh, one of the ways to kill time, really. Um, you go into these baths and you can uh, spend the whole day. One of the must items um, is the Speedo, which many men will wear. I don't own one, but uh, many of the older generation would go for that. And then you're just soaking into the water and uh, depending on which spa you go to, you just pick the one that you like. And, so there's... Uh, Different spas have different characteristics? Different size, different characteristics, mm-hmm. as well as the curing uh, water. Also, these spas are part of our national healthcare system, so you can just be assigned by your local doctor. and uh, oh. just, just you be um, ordered by your local doctor to sit in a spa for a whole day. How bad is that? That's good news. <laughs> you can go to the doctor, you can get good news, or you can get bad news. <laughs> Very nice to be instructed. You'll have to take next Wednesday off of work and sit in the spa. And Peter Poltzman, uh, the government pays for this? Yeah, I guess there's a copy there, but uh, it's uh, it's a minimum. Copy, so little, for yeah. most people, it's affordable. And that's right. the good news. That's yeah. the point. It's a very touristy thing to do, but fundamentally, it's it is an honest to goodness local tradition. Is going to the spa. The reason why it's part of our lives is because it works. So uh, we don't get hip replacements or knee replacements. That's not common uh, these days because we don't pay, I guess, enough for that. Right. Um, so the answer is going to the baths. Uh, you turn 35, 40, and then you make sure that you start going to the baths because it works. So are you saying going to the baths makes you healthier or it, it just helps you survive the No, the, no, the no, no. It works. It works. Right. You have a problem and then you go to the local doctor and then he would uh, send you to this and that place. And then uh, they actually do a massage, medical massage right. that's free. And then you, you 
your order to sit here, swim there, and then do all kinds of um, exercises. So is this a tradition that, I mean, you've got like uh, 30 or 40 years since the end of communism, and then you had 50 years before that, what was communism, and then you had centuries before that. Is this passion for the, the spa and, and wellness and, and going to the spa to regenerate, is that older? How, how far back does that go? Oh, well, we had Romans, and they used the hot water. They loved it. I mean, there, there are Roman baths. Everyone knows that. But yeah. uh, when the Turks were there for 150 years, they used it. Hungarians, whenever they were there, they used it. They, it's just, um, you know, trying it. And they started putting mud on it. I guess they just walked through, and then there was mud on their skin, and, and it felt better afterwards. So there's that mud therapy also. That's yeah, there's popular. mud therapy there as well. So um, it's just going there, learning about it, and then um, they realize that it helps. So, George, where does all this hot water come from? Oh, all the way from the below, from the ground. We don't have oil, but we have hot water. So uh, <laughs> uh, they say that's the one thing that probably we're never going to run out of. Probably would, we would appreciate more oil. <laughs> that would bring more money. <laughs> <Some> but, hot <laughs> water. Well, hot water is not <laughs> but yeah, the worst but we love the water. Yeah. And is this uh, a thing unique to Budapest, or do you find the passion for good baths in small towns in the countryside as well? Absolutely. The uh, I should say the Carpathian Basin, and that includes more than Hungary. Uh, yeah. the, the reason is that the crust of the earth is about half the size over there. So... Um, you go below ground and then you don't need to go very much uh, mm. below ground to find all these things. So we have got about a thousand hot springs. We only use a about thousand. one third. And yeah. this is this Hungary is really the Carpathian Basin, is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is a geological formation that is a basin where yeah. you have a high water table and yeah. it's hot. Exactly. Exactly. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about hot water in Hungary. If we are in Budapest, there's uh, several famous baths. Let's just talk about them quickly for travelers who can choose. Mm-hmm. Uh seems to be the most famous. How would you describe the, the Seychaney baths, George? The Seychaney bath is, is a fantastic venue with um, over 13, nearly 20 different bathtubs. So baths, uh, basically you're, um, you have a, a fantastic courtyard with big pools, a whirlpool, a lap pool. That's the only cold one in the whole mm-hmm. facility. And then you have a whole building, a whole beautiful Baroque building with small bathtubs, uh, really, where sometimes you can only fit five people. And then you walk one by one, your ticket allows you to go over, all over, and then each bathtub or each pool will indicate the temperature. And you just hop from one to the other, and you spend the whole day there. And so, Hungary uh, would know what routine to go, what order Right, to they, they develop their own custom, and right. um, friends of mine, for instance, have a yearly passes. So they finish work and then they pop in and they did there till uh, ten at night. For my, instance, my image at Saint Cheney and I just love it is there's sort of a circular river that goes around right. and around, and yep. there's all these old Hungarians that are usually floating, very well fed, <laughs> and they're floating around well, like they big, eat Hungarian by big Hungarian marshmallows, <laughs> and there's just it's a turbulent river, and they're yes. all just going with the flow. And the cool thing about Saint Cheney is it is in an amazing park. Yeah, it's in a city park. So yeah. you go there and you enjoy the park, you enjoy the St. Yeah. Jimmy Baths, mm-hmm. and you're uh, hanging out with the Hungarians. Peter Poltzman, uh, there's another more um, upscale bath, I think, the Gellert bath. Gellert, yeah. That's on the Buddhist side. Um, because Buddha is slightly more elegant, uh, you know, that's where the millionaires live. They tend to go to the to the ones on the Buddhist side, and then Gellert is one of them. And it sits by the foot of the Gellert, which traditionally has been a wealthy area. It's a beautiful thing with, with mosaics in there. Um, it's also indoors and outdoors, just like Seychenyi, but I guess the real draw there uh, would be the indoor part, as opposed to the Seychenyi, which is the outdoor part. And that's uh, part. architecture, yeah. too. Isn't it's it? beautiful architecture. It's, it's a blend of Art Nouveau with, with a bit of oriental um, mm-hmm. atmosphere. So it feels yes, a little more exotic than Seychenyi, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, if you're looking for an artistic experience with your yeah. hot water, yeah. That's but if you one. wish you were in Istanbul and you want something more Ottoman or more Turkish... 
you would go to, uh, what's that one called? Rudash. Rudash, yeah. yeah. And we've got three original Turkish ones, um, mm-hmm. and uh, Rudash is probably the best. And not only does it work during the day, during the day, by the way, there, there are different days for men and women to go to. So mm-hmm. um, be careful. You cannot go there with your husband or wife together. Uh, during the day, men and women can only go on certain days, but at the weekend, and that's a really good thing, they're not open during the day, but they're open during the night. So at 10 o'clock, a lot of young people go there. And it turns into a party place. So um, if you want to party in a Turkish bath, which is a completely wow. unique experience, you can go there. Weekends, people love it. after dark, Weekends. at Rudash. Yeah, exactly. Now, yeah. now, what is the etiquette? You have men some days, women other days. A lot of Americans are concerned about, is it nude? Do you wear a bathing suit? or? Well, if it's separate for men and women, it's clothing optional. And then you see all, all sorts of things if it's clothing optional. Uh, some people are not ready for that experience, I'm afraid. So that's why we would direct people to Seychelles or Gellert first. So Seychelles and Gellert would be always with a bathing suit. Yeah, absolutely. But if you go to another one where clothing optional, it would be clothing optional on the day where it's only men and men only, only women. women yeah. So you're not going to find yourself in a mixed situation. No, um, no, okay. not at all. If you're comfortable with that, it's an awesome experience. I think that you, you wear wraps. Um, well, so you they, can, they, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. it doesn't cover up much, so no. whatever. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Peter Poltzman and George Farkas, two guides from Budapest. We're talking about Hungarian hot springs, how Hungarians relax. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Dan is on the phone from Concord in California. Dan, thanks for your call. Great to talk with you. Uh, I just wanted to uh, relate a wonderful story we had on a recent tour to uh, Budapest. Our tour guide really pushed us to uh, get out of our comfort zone and and go to one of these baths. And it was something that we would have really been unlikely to do on our own, but he uh, told us that we really needed to do it, so we... uh, we did, and I got to tell you, it was one of the most fantastic things we had ever done because uh, not only it, was it fun, but it was it was very interesting to uh, see the locals in Budapest get out and uh, enjoy themselves. I mean, we were really out with the locals. In the mid-afternoon, it was more of an older crowd, and then it was very interesting to me as uh, it transitioned to 5 or 6 o'clock. It was a much younger crowd, and it was sort of the... Budapest equivalent of the beach in California. Um, you know, a lot of dates going on. Anyway, it was just great. And uh, to any of your listeners who are on the fence about doing that, I would strongly encourage them to uh, to do that. And, and uh, don't be uh, worried about uh, what you look like, because I am certainly among those who can be accused of being well-fed. <laughs> hey, Dan, um, I, I know the feeling. You're, there's a little anxiety, and it's kind of like you're going to be changing your clothes. You're going to be leaving your valuables in a locker. You're not going to speak the language. You know, you're out of your comfort zone. There's a little bit of vulnerability there. And uh, I think you're a good uh, inspiration for our listeners that when you just go for it and get out of your comfort zone, it's, it's pretty rare that you regret it, and generally it leaves you with a great travel memory. It sure does. All right. Take care, Dan. Thanks for the call. Hey, thanks. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There's more than just soaking in the baths. You can play chess. Peter, talk about this tradition of playing chess in the bath. I guess it's, it goes with having too much time on their hands. Some of the guys have got any paths and, uh, and you just go there. Uh, I guess... Uh, so this is where they hang out. It's like the town yeah. square, but it's underwater. Yeah, but you're supposed to take some money with you. Uh, don't they uh, play with like 100 or 200 foreign Yeah, George? little yeah. coins. It's just for the excitement. Yeah. You, win, yeah. you win some money. So yeah. uh, <laughs> Not that it works anything. It's just yeah. the fact that you won. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but you'll see people playing chess uh, with these yeah. wonderful uh, swimming pool chess boards. Yep. yep. And uh, there's more to it than just soaking also because... 
When you sign up, you can get a massage. You can do. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about relaxing Hungarian style with Peter Poltzman and George Farkas. You guys, let's just wrap things up with your personal favorite memory of enjoying a spa somewhere in Hungary. Just paint a picture to let us know how a Hungarian enjoys the hot spring. George? It's my childhood, um, basically with my sister. Uh, we're many, many summers long. Uh, we went down to our uh, summer cottage from uh, Saturday morning till Sunday night. We were there with my sister. My parents were back in the house and we were just let go, the two of us. We ran for home for uh, lunch and we ran back out for the afternoon and it was two kids. Uh, it was very safe and we just jumped in and out. We sunbathed. We went back into the water, in and out. It was fantastic. Sounds like an American childhood memory of going to the neighborhood swimming pool. Right. But you happen to have a mineral spa. Mm-hmm. And Peter. I would connect uh, to George uh, on this case because uh, for me, going back home after uh, after travel season, I can reconnect with my family. I've got three kids as well. And the first time when I really feel at home is when we go to a bath and then we start playing. I throw them in the water. We do the slides and then off you go. <laughs> so you're traveling around the United States right now. When you get home, checking out the bath will be part of your welcome home routine. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> and next time I come to Budapest, let's do it together. George Farkas, Peter Poltzman, thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. We'll get introduced to the attractions of Padua, Italy in just a bit. Next, Andres Russo grew up hearing about a mysterious river in Peru, one where the water was so hot you couldn't take a swim. He tells us how he encountered one of the most unexpected geothermal features in the Amazon and what it takes to protect the boiling river. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Could it be true? Growing up, Andres Russo heard stories from his Peruvian grandfather about a sacred river that flows with boiling water into the Amazon. He always wondered if it was just an old story, an exaggeration, or a genuine mystery waiting to be uncovered, since it didn't appear on any maps. As part of his Ph.D. studies in geophysics, he knew he had to find out. It could end up being one of the largest geothermal features on the planet and a handy source of renewable energy for Peru. Andres is a National Geographic explorer, and he's produced a TED Talk and a book about his quest to find the boiling river and what its existence could mean for a variety of competing interests. He joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what he discovered. Andres, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, really exciting to be here. Well, you know, your story is so exciting, and, and I think it's so cool because it goes back to a legend you heard from your grandfather. What was that legend? So it was actually the legend of Paititi. Paititi is Quechua for El Dorado, which is Spanish for the city of gold. The, the basic premise of the legend is that new waves of Spaniards were coming into Peru after the conquest of the Inca, all hungry for gold and glory. And, well, they were looking for another civilization to conquer. So the Inca, out of vengeance, actually tell the, the Spaniards, go into the jungle, you'll find this city of gold. The Spaniards go off, and the few that return come back with these crazy stories of powerful shamans, poison arrows, giant spiders that could eat birds, snakes that swallow men whole, and one of the details was a river that boiled. So you heard about this story, and, and one day you decided, is this for real? Can I go find it? Is that the deal? <laughs> and then you talked to your grandmother, and, and she actually confirmed it? I was working on my PhD in geophysics at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, the focus of my dissertation work was to do a geothermal map of Peru, looking at heat flow, looking at ultimately renewable energy potential in, in the country. I have some friends that work at Peru's geological survey, I guess the equivalent, it's got a longer name, and they had been preparing a map of Peru's geothermal manifestations, so think hot springs, fumaroles, etc. 
in the process of looking at their map right before they published it, I remembered this legend that mentioned this river that boiled. And I got curious and I started asking, Hoy, guys, did you come across anything, you know, mm-hmm. a big thermal river in the Amazon? And they said no. They said it was probably exaggerated. And that actually led me to ask a whole bunch of questions to what oil and gas companies, mining companies, the government, professors at universities. And unfortunately, everyone said no. The basic answer that I got was, you know, it's an exaggerated tale. I took that to a family dinner because everything in, everything important in Peru happens over food. I took that to a family dinner when it was actually my aunt, not my grandmother, it was my aunt, who suddenly goes, no, Andres, that's not true. I've been there. I've seen it. I've even swum in the boiling river. She's a bit of a joker, so I thought that she was just pulling my leg and I didn't believe her. And it took my uncle to say, actually, no, Andres, she's not kidding. There is a river that a big thermal river in the middle of this part of the Amazon that it's flowing for at least 200 yards, very wide, as wide as a two-lane road, and at at least maybe 190 degrees Fahrenheit. It's got a powerful flow rate, too, and it's protected by this powerful shaman. Your your aunt's actually friends with his wife because she used to do indigenous rights work. And um, (laughs) that's where it all started. Fast forward a little bit, then my aunt is leading me into the jungle to introduce me personally to the shaman that protects the sacred site to see if I can obtain his blessing to study their sacred river. So on what condition did he let you study the river then? How did you have to convince him that, that he could trust you? It was funny because he, he just watched me. I was speaking to him and just kind of, you know, explaining what I was trying to do after I had tried to get, honestly, I tried to get in contact with him for six months prior to showing up into the jungle they didn't answer any of my phone calls, return my messages, or answer any of the emails. But um, when I finally met him in person, you know, he said it himself. You you can't fool someone when you're looking at someone into their eyes. And this is just someone who, he's a very, just a, an eminence. I don't know what, how else to say it. He's a very, he's an amazing person. So he got comfortable with you, and then he helped escort you and your aunt. Is that the idea? Actually, the way that it the way that it worked out was because they knew my aunt. They weren't in in town at the moment uh, when we first arrived, but because my aunt was able to get in contact with the shaman's wife once we were in the jungle uh, via phone, they let us in to look at the river. So we actually came there first. I got the the shaman's apprentice helped us around. That I got the shaman's apprentice's permission to to get some water samples, for example. And then the plan was to meet the next day with a shaman in the in the city prior to our departure back to Lima. You know, that's where everything took place. Because, I mean, had the I showed the shaman the samples, that the water samples that his apprentice had okayed me to get, assuming that I got the okay of the shaman. And yeah, it was, it was pretty intense because I had all this, I had all these samples. I really wanted to study this site because there was, there was a huge elephant in the room scientifically, and I'll mention that in, in one second. But, you know, I sat down with him. He just looked at me in the eyes. He had a very this amazing presence. He has this amazing presence to him. He's just a walking library, as some some ethnobotanists would call it. It's just truly a bastion of his culture and a long, long tradition of Amazonian healing. And um, he heard me out, and there was this incredible moment that he goes, he looks at me, and he just finally laughs. (laughs) He goes, "I, I, I get it. I'm a shaman. I'm a healer. Curandero, right? I'm a healer of humanity. My role, he says, is to heal humans you're a healer of the earth and your mission is to heal the earth. Uh, okay. So you have my blessing to study the river. And then he gave me a talisman. This talisman happened to be an oyster fossil. 
Andres Russo is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's telling us about his quest to confirm the existence of a mysterious boiling river in the Amazon of Peru. We have links to the TED Talk Andres gave, plus photos from his journey. You'll find it in the radio section at ricksteves.com. So, Andres, you got the shamans okay. Are you traveling with your aunt, and you're going up the river looking for this? Or tell me just physically, as a traveler, how you got there. So in 2011, the way that we got to the Boiling River was actually from Lima. We took a flight to Pucallpa, which is about an hour. So one-hour flight, followed by two hours in a car, followed by 30 minutes on a motorized canoe, and then an hour walking into the jungle. Hmm. And then what was it like when you approached it? What did you hear? What did you smell? Did you feel like you're going into a a sacred wonderland? or, Or what happened when you actually got there? It's a long hike in. So on my way in, I had... A number. I was extremely skeptical, to be honest with you, that this place was even real. I th- honestly thought it was going to be exaggerated. Then we get to this ridge, so we walk up this hill, and then I hear this low sort of rumble, a surge, and I ask the, the shaman's apprentice who's guiding us, saying, well, what is that? And he says, the river, you know, go ahead. So I bolt down the side of this ridge, and I see this massive thermal river flowing as wide as a two-lane road for at least 200 yards and even though the day was itself very hot the water was still steaming which gave me an incredible indication of the temperatures that we were looking at you wrote about standing on a rock the size of a piece of paper in a rainstorm with all the steam coming out around you what was that like it was it was really intense. We were doing field work. This was in 2012, and we had got caught in the rainstorm at one of the hottest points in the river. So I was next to a, a large hot spring that was over 210 degrees. And on the other side, there was well, the boiling river at about 180 degrees flowing, flowing fast. So it was, it was impressive. My main concern was that the waters would rise. Now that is hot. I mean, when I get into my hot tub, if it's at 105 I mean, I'm feeling like a lobster. Help us just get our brain around, how hot is that? So, at about 117 degrees Fahrenheit is where water starts to hurt. And I'm telling you this from personal experience. Um, <laughs> I work on volcanoes and geothermal systems. 117 is that, is that number where you do That's not want to get in. <laughs> it is, yeah, you definitely do not want to be getting in, in water that is... So, we're talking 180 degrees or something. What happens if an animal falls in? What, what ex- physically, what happens? So I've seen a number of animals fall in, and in general, at those temperatures, creatures like us, well, they generally don't come out. At those temperatures, your muscles are cooking on the bone, so it's a struggle to get out. You're trying to swim out, you're losing power and losing power until you finally sink. So it's uh, definitely a horrible, horrible way to die, and in case there's any, you know, people who would like to visit the Voiling River, just be extremely careful. You even talked about how the indigenous people gave you a tea bag and sent you down to the river. Exactly. Um, my first morning there, I woke up and I asked for tea. The shaman's apprentice gave me a tea bag and a mug and pointed me down <laughs> to the river. And he said, there you go. <laughs> I actually had to wait for it to cool. As a geothermal scientist, you must have just been mind boggled by this. Now, didn't you think, like, where's the volcano? Actually, I didn't think where, where was the volcano. I'd already done background research to know that there were no volcanoes anywhere near the area. In fact, the closest one's over 430 miles away. My biggest concern was that it wasn't natural. What do you mean it wasn't natural? That it was created by an oil and gas accident. There's an oil and gas field oh nearby, and goodness. it's actually the oldest oil field in the Peruvian Amazon. Are you familiar with the LUSI, the Lucy Mud Volcano in East Java? No. Please look it up online for more detail, but the two-second version is they were drilling an, an oil and gas well, 
it hit a geothermal system that, well, they weren't prepared for. It caused a blowout. So at this point, it's displaced over 30,000 people. It's flooded a massive area with thermal water. And that was honestly the image that first came to mind. Mm -hmm. it, it really took two years from the moment I arrived at the Boiling River before I was able to rule out that it was not an so oil you're and gas convinced it was, it was natural. And, uh, of course, the indigenous people there do also. There's that rock called the, the Mother of the Waters Spirit. Exactly. So the Yakumama. Yaku means water, mama means mother. And the idea is that one of the reasons that this river is sacred is because it's the home of the Yakumama, this giant serpent spirit who gives birth to hot and cold water. And she's at the headwaters of the river. The river actually starts off cold. So it starts off cold. And then at, at one point where this, you know, 15 foot boulder that looks like a snake's head, naturally, there's a fault that's producing hot water. And right next to it is this cold water. So it really brings our legends to life because you see mm. hot and cold water erupting underneath the protective motherly jaws of this giant serpent rock spirit. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Andres Ruzo, and his book is called The Boiling River. It talks about his adventure, finding a river in Peru that is hot enough to kill animals when they fall into it. Andres, it was interesting reading your book. It just felt like it was a, a real fascinating journey for you as a scientist to respect the indigenous, natural, traditional thinking along with your scientific background. I mean, tell us a few examples of how you gained a respect for the traditional outlook uh, as opposed to your college-trained scientific outlook. I was fascinated by the time you were covered with bug bites and uh, nobody else was when you're all using the same kind of uh, bug repellent. Yeah, we were using 99.8% uh, DEET, which melted my pelican case to give you an idea. And, and it didn't work on you? No, it what, didn't What did work. the shaman uh, tell you? Why, why, you must have said, why are they eating me up? Yeah, I did. And he gave me an answer, which was, well, the jungle, the spirits of the jungle see inside you. They see the knowledge that you bring into this place. And they've been hurt by people with your knowledge before. And you're Peruvian. You have roots here, not like the other. There was another geoscientist in our group. You have roots here. And because of that, the jungle sees you as a threat. And that's why it's attacking you. So the shaman recommended and suggested strongly that I do a, a ceremony to meet the spirits of the jungle and really be presented to them by him. Which so was he said the jungle needs to see your soul. Exactly. Wow. How did he let the jungle see your soul? So one evening we had we had a ceremony, and they have, in, in the Amazon, they when they heal, you can also use these to curse or to you know, condemn or to protect. They're called Icaros. Icaros are songs of the Amazonians. The closest thing I can really relate them to is spells. Just mm -hmm. like a wizard has spells. Mm -hmm. You know, these guys use Ikanos in all sorts of amazing ways. And the work is done at night. And he sang on behalf of, as a sort of intercessor, as well as applying tobacco smoke from a, a jungle variant of, of the tobacco plant, as well as different incenses, as well mm -hmm. as a special perfume that they make out of flowers there. So as a scientist, it must have been fascinating for you because... Sometimes you'd sort of roll your eyes, and other times you'd think, well, he's a healer, and he's got access to the medicinal wonders of the jungle that conventional Western medicine doesn't appreciate. How did you struggle with that, or what did you come away with? To be honest with you, there was only one moment in my over five years of doing work there that I really got a little frustrated with, and that, was, that wasn't that was with the shaman at all, because personally, I, I think that 
you know, be it spirituality or, or science, we're both trying to understand our world, if you put it very, very simply. And I think that the name, the ancient name of the river itself, Shanaitim Bishka, which literally, well, which roughly translates to boiled with the heat of the sun. I think that's a huge testament to that. That is, mm-hmm. by the, I mean, boiled with the heat of the sun. That's a hypothesis. Hmm. Regardless of how you want to look at it, that is an attempt of ancient Amazonians trying to explain the world around them by the parameters and potential processes that could create such a thing. Later on, they tried to explain the boiling river, the locals did, through jungle spirits. Later on, they thought it was a volcano. And now we know it's a non-volcanic geothermal mm-hmm. feature. And a very large one at that. It's among the largest in the world. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Andres Ruzo. His book is called The Boiling River. He's got a TED Talk, fascinating TED Talk on the topic. Did you find any life forms uh, in the Boiling River? We actually did. Um, we're working on, on that right now. So we have identified undocumented species thus far. We're working on describing them hmm. uh, for science. What are they like? Are they little guppies or lizards or what? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm not at liberty to talk about You're the, kidding. the That's, larger, this more... This a secret thing then? Wow. Absolutely. Because if not, there's... You know, we're trying to do things respectfully. And oh, unfortunately, okay. most people, from my experience, don't come at these things with this much respect. Right. So if they hear about something, they'll go in and try to, quote unquote, oh, steal the discovery. Yeah. Or they might go in and try to do some other nonsense. And it's, it's already happened before. But so there are creatures that can live in 180-degree water then that, that we haven't found before. Not creatures like you and I would think, but there are extremophiles that we have some other potentially new species that are, are undocumented at this point. We just have to describe right. them before be they can become careful. a new species. What's, but what? extremophiles, like, in short, they look like mucus. <laughs> An extremophile is a life form that can handle extreme environments. And in this case, extreme temperatures that would kill you and me. There's some algaes. In this case, at the Boiling River, there's some algaes. There are some algal mats. So these are kind of like mucusy clumps. These are slimes. Yeah, exactly. Just think of slimes that happen to be living organisms that could actually have a really big impact on your life and mine. It's amazing. I mean, something as simple as that could really revolutionize everything from medicines to how we make the clothes you wear or the shoes on your feet. You know, that's probably a good reason to make friends with shamans. Yeah, absolutely. Andres, let's just finish with the heart of the jungle fossil. That was such a beautiful story you talked about in your book. Tell us about this fossil and its meaning to you and to the uh, indigenous people who gave it to you. I was doing work in the in the jungle itself, so deep in the jungle where most of the people from the community honestly don't go. And I found a peculiar fossil that was, you know, two oysters cemented together in the shape of a heart. And I brought it to Maestro Juan, the shaman of the place, and I showed it to him, and he actually said a very beautiful thing about it. He said, you know, the jungle has given you its heart, so you, you need to protect it. And it, It's sort of like you're going on a date with my daughter sort of deal. Mm. Take care of her in the in light of the jungle. And it, it was very significant for me. And So, Andres, as a geothermal scientist from the first world, are they correct in considering you a friend of the Boiling River? Absolutely. Everything that I'm doing, I'm doing in collaboration with them. The TED Talk would not have come out without the shaman's permission, nor would the TED book, nor would any of the research. So this is a group, a community, a tribal effort, if you will. Hmm. We're all in this together, and we're all looking for the protection of the site. Fascinating project. Andres Russo, thanks for sharing your adventures and the lessons you've learned from it in your book, The Boiling River. Thank you very much.
It has the charms of a medieval Italian city with the prestige of having one of the oldest universities in Europe, founded in 1222. It's also the setting of Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew and an easy getaway from all the crowds of Venice. Up next, Christina Pernecoli takes your calls at 877-333-RICK as we find out about her hometown of Padova. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Whether you call it Padua or Padova, it's a picturesque powerhouse of a city that tends to get overlooked in favor of its famous neighbor, Venice. And yet, as perhaps the oldest city in northern Italy, Padova has plenty to boast about. Its university is nearly 800 years old, the home of modern science, and Galileo and Erasmus are included on its alumni roster. And while there's still a bit of a historic rivalry with Venice, today Padova is an easy train commute away. If you're thinking of finally seeing Venice, you should know that the attractions of nearby Padova deserve a place on your itinerary as well. And it comes without all the intense summer crowds that can make parts of Venice such a challenge. Hometown guide Christina Pernecole joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to take your calls at 877-333-7425 and tell us about her hometown and the surrounding Veneto region of northeast Italy. Christina, buongiorno. Grazie, Rick. First of all, I love the sound of your name, but I cannot say it. Can you pronounce your first and last name in a nice Veneto accent? Sure. Christina Pernecole. You should learn to roll the R's. I got it. Christina so tell me about the Veneto, first of all. Veneto is a beautiful region to me. It's in the northeast part of Italy, surrounded by many mountains, and uh, we have seas, we have lakes, we have hills. Now, Veneto and Venice, does that kind of imply that this is the region of Venice, or what came first? Well, the Venetian would speak about Venus, uh, which is a lovely story. I love that. But we know that the Veneti or Venetkins were a population. They came from so far. And speaking about immigration, we are talking about a group. They came from the area of Paphlagonia. Sounds very exotic. And it is. It was in Asia, Turkey. Now, what is the relationship between Venice and Padova? Oh, that's a big story. I can talk for hours. Because they're just about half an hour apart on the train, right? Yes, and uh, we feel, it's a controversial feeling, you know. We were independent, we didn't have a king, and suddenly Venetian submitted us in 1405. And I guess that very first feeling of being uh, defeated never got off our minds. Mm. So there is always a kind of rivalry, because it was us, you know, the people from the mainland that founded Venice running away from the barbarians in 453 AD. So we feel kind, Mama and Papa of Venice. And the child is so ungrateful and takes over in 1405, defeats us. And of course, the symbol of Venice is the the winged lion of St. Mark. And uh, in Padova, you'll find the, the winged lion representing your overlord, basically, since 1405, Venice. But you will find a kitten with wings as well. A kitten with wings? Yes. What is that? This is a kind of joke against the Venetians. So at the very beginning, we weren't very happy, of course. So instead of a roaring lion, we put a kitten with wings. Oh, that's sweet. That's oh, sweet. Yes, I, we you are. Know, I always think... If Venice wasn't there, there'd be 10 times the visitors to Padova because it's a great city, but people just don't know about it because it's in the in the shadow of Venice from a tourism point of view. And you're right. Venice is so overwhelming. And besides the very beginning and another couple of episodes during the 15th, 16th and 17th century, we were loyal to the Venetians. 
they did so much from the intellectual point of view, mm-hmm. because we host this university, which is the third eldest in the world, mm-hmm. was founded in 1222. And they kind of, today we would use the word sponsorizzazione, they sponsored our university. Mm-hmm. They enabled our professors and students to do things that were elsewhere forbidden. Okay, so Padova has had this um, special status as a university town for 800 years almost. Uh, you hear the word Padua and Padova, Padua, P-A-D-U-A and P-O-D-O-V-A. W- what is the story of the two names for one city? Well, going back to the Roman times, Patavium was our name. We're okay. a bit older than Rome. You know, Tite Livy, the famous Roman historian, was from Padova, so he's giving us a very old, ancient, important origin. So Patavium, Padova, that's quite similar. But there was a gentleman who never traveled and who was a great writer, a perfect match with Petrarca and Dante. His name was Shakespeare. And in Act 1, Scene 1 of The Taming of the Shrew, he reports about Petrucco having left the University of Bologna and joining the University of Padua. But he was such a wonderful writer that we forgive him this little mistake. Oh, no. So my confusion about the two names of your town is thanks to William Shakespeare. Yes. Oh, but Padova is how you say it. Yes. So what is Padova known for among Italians? What, what, are, you, what are you proud of? We host more than 60,000 students, which on a population of 211,000 makes it a quite lively city. But we are very important because of the past of the professors hosted in our university. Remember Galileo Galilei? Mm-hmm. He discovered the satellite of Jupiter in my town. And Erasmus de Rotterdam was uh, in Padova, Fallopi. You know, Fallopi discovered the fallopian tube and then Eustatia right. also? Right, Bartolomeo Eustachio, so Eustachian tube. So the Eustachian and fallopian tubes were discovered by two different scholars, both yes. from Padova. Yes. Well, they were not really from Padova, but, but they, they came to Padova they, yeah. because that was the safest place in the world. To be free thinking. To be free thinking wow. and to do things that were elsewhere forbidden by law. You would risk exile, excommunication, jail, if you would do anatomy lessons elsewhere, but not in Padova. Because today, as a tourist, you can actually see the dissection theater where they would take the body apart and study it and big stands all the way around so people could gather around and watch the operation. Yes. And there were almost 250, if not more, students. And I was told that it's not much different than today at, you know, normal colleges, universities. So they would watch candlelight, of course, Amazing. And it is amazing because it dates back to 1594 and it's still there. And you that would theater still is one see. of the great sites uh, for anybody interested in, in medical history, certainly. So with your famous university, uh, how do other people see the Padovans and how do the Padovans see themselves? We have a way of saying the Venetian are the great lords. The Veronese are all mad, all crazy. The Vicenzi, they eat cats. Don't ask me why they are mangiacatti. And the Padua, Grand dottori, great doctors. So we are the brains of Veneto. What were the Venetians? Venetians are the great lords, the grand signori. The great signori. lords, so they're the overlords. And the people from Vicenza? They eat cats. They eat cats, the people from Verona? All mad. All Tutti mad, matti. crazy. Tutti matti. <laughs> and the people of Padova? Grand dottori, great doctors. So nice. they, we are the brains. It's Travel with Rick Steves and hometown guide Christina Pernecole is introducing us to the pleasures of Padova. It's home to one of the oldest universities in the world, and we're finding plenty to explore in the Veneto region of northeast Italy. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Susan's on the line from Hendersonville in North Carolina. 
Susan, does Padova sound like the kind of town you might include on your next trip to Italy? Uh, yes, we are very excited to be based in Padova for eight days to explore the Veneto, uh, primarily Venezia, Vicenza, Verona, and Padova. And my question concerns the logistics of avoiding the crowds of turisti and all the cruise ship mobs in Venezia, then what would be the best timing for traveling on the train between Padova and Venezia? Okay, so that that really makes sense because if you want to avoid the crowds, Venice is not only very, very crowded, but quite expensive. And for uh, quite a lot less money, you can get a comfortable hotel in Padova, and then trains are going every half an hour into Venice, and in 30 minutes, you'll be in Venice just like a local commuter. Christina, any thoughts about making Padova your home base? Oh, I love the idea that you're spending four days in Padova, maybe longer. Don't worry about the crowds in the train. There is a lovely 818 train from Padova to Venice, and you will see us. It's us, the locals. We're going to work, so we're going to chat. You will see lawyers, very well-dressed. You will see tourists. You will see students. You just go in, and then, you know, it's the final destination, and you get off in Santa Lucia in Venezia, and it's mm. so beautiful. We all get off the train, stop there, open mouth, and just <laughs> enjoy the view of the churches. Susan, you may be on the train with Christina. So 8.18 every morning, <laughs> there's a train. Half an hour later, you go. The nice thing is it's the last stop. You don't need to remember when to get off. Just get off when everybody yes. does. Okay, thanks for your call. Yep, thank you. Take Bye-bye. Care. Bye now. Ciao. And Mark's calling from Albany in California. And uh, Mark, what are your travel plans for Italy and the yeah, Veneto? Hi, yeah, Rick. I have three high school teenagers that I'm thinking of taking to Italy this summer. As they could be quite energetic on our family vacations, I was thinking of finding some rather adventuresome, thrilling activities to do with them. In my research, I've come across canyoning and abseiling. Both look quite exhilarating, but I wanted to know, in your guest's opinion, are such activities safe? And if so, are what are some of the best places and and perhaps uh, what are some of the recommended outfitters out there? So this is adventure sports, and canyoning is going down a canyon with a group of people tied to a rope and with pads and wetsuits and bouncing around in the waterfalls. And what is abseiling? You know, I think it's somewhat similar, but I think it's, according to the videos I've seen on uh, on the Internet, it, it looks like you're doing like more repelling down the... Christina, um, do you know anything about outdoor adventures like this? Oh, well, I do, but not, I'm not into that stuff. And I had a teenager, so now she's grown. I wouldn't let her do that. But there is a beautiful river. It's called the River Brenta that starts from our mountains and gets directly into the South Lagoon of Venice. So if you want to go, Bassano del Grappa would be the perfect place for that. Bassano del mm. Grappa, famous as the home of Grappa, the fire water. Yes. So you can look in Bassano del Grappa for the canyoning. And, you know, one thing I love if I was traveling with some teenagers is going up into uh, the Dolomite, the Dolomites and the Alpi di Susi. And this is the highest alpine meadow. And there are some great hikes from there. And you can ride the lift to some dramatic settings and then and then feel like you're a mountain climber even though you're not. We wish the Dolomites would be part of Veneto, but they are not. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a couple hours north of there, but uh, good luck with your kids, Mark. And uh, there's a lot of fun things to do in Venice with kids. Uh, there's kayaking tours of Venice, actually, that have become uh, ah, that popular. That would be terrific. Yeah. Uh, can I ask your guest why she was not recommended? Is it because it's not safe? Because I'm an Italian mama. 
And so we nurse our kids and we watch that they don't get hurt, don't get wet, because, you know, they can always get a cold. <laughs> I'm, I'm a typical Italian mama. I think she does it now, but she doesn't tell me. But it's not dangerous, of course, because you're always guided. But again, as Rick said, Venice offers so many opportunities. I think it's called paddling. That mm-hmm. you stand and you just cross the canal and it's so much fun because you have to watch out for your head mm-hmm. uh, when you travel through Venice. And there is the Lido as well, which has a beautiful beach. Well, beautiful for Italian standards. You know, that's a very good point. When you've got teenagers in Venice, uh, they want some time on the beach. And you just take the, the city ferry over to the Lido, L-I-D-O, and from the ferry dock you can walk to the beach and uh, the kids love that. Great. Well, thank you very much. Okay, Mark. Good thank luck you. with your trip. Thanks. Christina Pernecle is taking your calls at 877-333-RIC as we explore her hometown of Padova in the Veneto region of northeast Italy, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Lisa's calling from Cox in Arkansas. Lisa, what are your plans for Padova? Our plans, we've only got about five hours in Padova. This is our second time to the Veneto, and the first time we went to Verona from Venice, and we didn't get the chance to go to Padova. And so my question is, if you only have five hours in Padova, and if you're an art fanatic, what would you recommend for those five hours? Okay, so this is for anybody staying in Venice that uh, wants to side trip for the better part of a day, a half hour away by train, five hours in Padova, and you're an art fanatic. Well, Padova is certainly a good place to go if you're an art fanatic. What would you recommend, Christina? Very close to the train station. It's about a seven minutes walk. We have this magnificent Scrovegni Chapel. It's a chapel that is considered a work of art of Giotto, the best work of art of Giotto, the most mature. And, you know, Giotto is considered to be the father of modern art, modern painting. So I would start with Giotto, then stroll through the city markets. We have three piazza in the city centre, where we also have the old university. So the old university would be a must-do. And then the three piazzas are so lovely. Even just for a little break, you can go shopping underneath the huge, it's called Salone. It used to be a courthouse, but it dates back to 1219. And it was enlarged with a huge roof, which now looks like a boat reverse. And it's the hugest hall in the world. And if you love art, well, that's going to be the place for you because you got three tiers with 111 frescoes per tier plus a lower one. They were originally all painted by Giotto. We lost them in 1400, but they were repainted the same way. And then I would for sure go to Sant'Antonio, the Basilic of San Antony. We just call it Santo, the saint, because he's the only one, you know, being called a saint in less than a year after his death. He died on the 13th of June, 1231. He was canonized 11 and a half months later on the 30th May, 1232. And this basilica is simply breathtaking. Besides having works of art of some of the most talented pupils of Giotto and his school, you have the breathtaking statues of Donatello. Mm. Gatta Melata, which is a general on a horse, and it's the prototype to all important horse monuments, is right there waiting for you at the square. And this is the first impact. But if you get the chance and you come across a friar or one of the Vatican guards, ask them to take you up to the main altar. You will love the sight of all the statues there. There is my favorite is the crucifixion. Well, that Christ looks like if it's a real human being dying right at that right moment. And this is in the Basilica of St. Anthony. See, 
Okay, Lisa, so just a, a couple of thoughts. It's just so exciting to think you'd have five hours in Padova. Christina's laid it out quite nicely. I would remind you the highlight of the city artistically is the Scrovini Chapel, where all the Giotto is that uh, Christina was talking about. I believe you'll need a reservation for that in advance. Otherwise, you will not get in. So uh, make a reservation in advance. It's quite straightforward and easy. The nice thing, all of this is a pleasant downhill walk. From there, you'll go through the great squares of the city, the Palazzo della Regione, uh, which is the huge palace with all the art with the upturned boat kind of uh, roof. And uh, then you'll see the wonderful fruit markets and vegetable markets. And then at the far bottom of the town, you'll come to this amazing basilica. And it seems like half the people in town are regular tourists and half the visitors in town are pilgrims. And their first sight is the Basilica of St. Anthony, the beloved saint. And uh, you'll see all the art there. And then from the bottom of town, you simply catch a taxi or a tram, but the taxi can zip you effortlessly right back to the train station, and you're on your way. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for your call. Ciao. Thank you. If uh, Lisa has that much time, and if she's side-tripping from Venice, I would highly recommend spending a longer time. Have a nice dinner in Padova, and remember, in the evening, you've got this aperitivo tradition, and because Padova is a university town, all the students are out on the beautiful squares. Christina, let's finish our conversation about Padova about enjoying the piazza, the passeggiata, and the spritz. Oh, yes. This is what we love to do. You know, after a hard day's work, we all meet at the piazza. We don't even need to say where. There are lots of places to sit outside. We just say, let's ci vediamo in piazza. We meet at the piazza. And the spritz, well, the story of the spritz is interesting. What is the spritz, the, the drink itself? The drink itself is actually water, very little. Prosecco, or it can be still wine, then we can add either Aperol, which is something typical from Padova, or we can add Campari. Aperol has a kind of orange color and is sweeter, doesn't have that much alcohol. And Campari is a little bit more bitter, has got a like a burgundy color. But the nicest thing is that we owe this to the Austrian Empire. When Napoleon defeated us, that's back in 1797, he then gave us to the Austrian Empire, and the Austrians were not used to drinking our wine. It was way too strong for them, so they added water, and they called it Gespritzter. And now, you know, we optimize in Italy. We are a bit lazy sometimes, so we cut the name Gespritzter short in Spritz, and we added the Aperol from Padova. And now it's known worldwide. And it's a Padovan specialty. It's a great way to meet the people, a great way to watch the sun go down, a great way to enjoy the good life while you're in a beautiful town, Padova. Right. Christina. Arrivederci in Padova. Mille grazie, Christina. Prego. Ciao. Arrivederci. I'll Ciao. see you next time in Padova. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan Wolner. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to WLRN Miami for studio help this week. You can hear more from Andres Russo about his experiences at the Boiling River in Peru and a link to his TED Talk. It's in the radio section of our website. You'll also find links for Rick's next recording sessions and topics and instructions for joining us as a caller. Look for the radio links at ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves' Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guides for Rome, Venice, Florence, and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian phrasebook.
To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.